Nothing like pain to make you all the same. God, I'm not a guitar player. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, one more, and we're gonna get on to the snipes. This is mine. Adrian. <laughs> Matt. <laughs> What I know of my daughter, she was uh, very quiet, very reserved, ultra, ultra shy, the last person in the world who would call attention to herself. And yet, put a microphone in her hand, march her up on a stage, and she was just magnetic. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. The grunge rock scene exploded in Seattle, Washington in the early 90s. Bands like Nirvana were rising in popularity, but Seattle called itself home to many up-and-coming stars. Many of those bands vied for their chance to play at the Comet Tavern, a local bar that still stands there today. Mia Zapata and her band, The Gits, were one of the grunge rock bands that were on their way to the top. They put in the work, and while they weren't overnight sensations, they rocked their way to a steady climb upwards. The Gits signed a record deal with the famed Atlantic Records, made an album, and scheduled a tour. Life was going exactly how Mia Zapata always dreamed it would. Until 1993, the night when the devil himself attacked Mia, brutally robbing her life and the world of her music. Okay. Onto the show. Mia Zapata was a legitimate rock star. She had just completed a successful tour on the west coast of the United States and was back home in Seattle, savoring her success. It was July 6, 1993, and she was hanging out with some friends, enjoying a rock show at the Comet Tavern, which is located in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle, a place where many local musicians called home. Around 1 a.m., Mia left the bar and went across the street to a friend's house. The friend, known as TV, was someone she played with in another band. Mia's main band, The Gits, were becoming popular in the grunge rock scene, But she liked to expand her abilities by playing with different bands and sometimes even solo. TV lived upstairs from the studio where the bands practiced, and therefore the apartment was a frequent hangout. When she arrived, Mia went to the studio to check for her ex-boyfriend, Robert Jenkins. Robert wasn't there, and this infuriated Mia. She wanted to discuss the state of their relationship and not being able to find him just exacerbated her frustrations. Mia went back to TV's apartment and wound up staying there for a bit, leaving at around 2 a.m. She indicated that she was going to get a cab ride home and took off. Mia was intoxicated enough that walking wouldn't have been a good idea. However, there was never any evidence that she got into a cab. She seemingly disappeared into the night. At approximately 3.30 a.m. on the morning of July 7th, the Seattle Fire Department received a call saying there was a young woman in distress. They responded to the area of 24th Avenue South between South Washington and South Yesler. There, they found Mia, and she wasn't breathing. 
she was found lying with her ankles crossed and arms outstretched. No pulse could be found and paramedics tried CPR, but she was ultimately declared dead. Her dad received the devastating call that no parent should ever have to get. He had to identify his daughter's battered, deceased body. The state of her body was shocking. She wasn't wearing her underwear or a bra. They were stuffed into the pocket of her jeans. Her hoodie sweatshirt was pushed up and the hood was pulled over her head, with the string tied tightly. It was determined that Mia was strangled with a ligature. The medical examiner concluded that the string from her hoodie was the ligature that was used. Friends would later share their shock over Mia's death in a video that was submitted to the court to demonstrate the impact that Mia's death had on them. I just remember hearing my friend Greta on the answering machine saying, Mia's dead, Tess. Where are you? Where are you? The main thing for me at that time was that she was gone and that she was dead and that she had suffered, that she had suffered. Mia endured terrible injuries, particularly to her internal organs. The injuries were so severe that she just as easily could have died from the beating. Her attacker gave Mia a horrific pummeling, raping her and inflicting numerous injuries to her anal and vaginal areas. There were marks on her nipples that appeared to be bite marks, so swabs were taken in case there was trace DNA left behind. Forensic testing determined that the swabs did not contain semen, but did include saliva. Despite the presence of forensic evidence, her killer was not found right away. For a time, the police suspected Mia's ex-boyfriend, Robert Jenkins, as having killed her. However, he was eventually cleared as a suspect. In 2001, eight years after Mia's death, the Seattle Police Department assigned a detective to review cold case files in an attempt to close some of them. The team was self-appointed as the cold case squad. Detectives took DNA samples to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab for additional testing. Using two different methods of testing, which are called the short tandem, as well as a polymerase chain reaction, the scientist was able to pull two DNA profiles. One belonged to Mia, and the other belonged to an unknown male. The male's profile was entered into the national database in June of 2002, but it didn't match any samples already entered. If not for this DNA recovery and analysis, Mia's killer would have probably never been caught. The DNA recovered in her case was the only evidence of substance that could be used to investigate. Detective Richard Gagnon worked for the Seattle Police Department as a homicide detective. He began working with the cold case squad and Mia's murder came across his desk as it was one of two of the most noteworthy unsolved murders in the Seattle area. The team he worked with had a tremendous record for closing cases. Between 2003 and 2005, the team solved approximately 20 out of 300 cold case murders. They were able to determine the timeline of Mia's day, mapping out her entire night of July 6th and morning of July 7th. Every move she made could be accounted for. Everything except for the time between when she left TV's apartment and when her body was discovered. Here is where entering samples into the national database becomes so essential. Despite the unsuccessful DNA match in June, 
the Washington State Police was made aware of a positive hit to the male DNA in Mia's gold case in December of 2002. The match came back to a man named Jesus Mesquia. He was living in Florida at the time of the positive DNA match. You see, Jesus was on probation for a felony burglary charge. A part of his probation meant that he had to give DNA samples to be entered into the national database, which is why there was ultimately a positive hit. His sample was entered between June and December of 2002. Detectives started to investigate the man whose DNA was a positive match. They quickly discovered that between 1992 and 1993, he moved to Seattle to live with a woman. That woman had a job in Seattle, and he followed her there. Even more damning, their apartment was only about a mile from where Mia's body was found. The woman he lived with was out of town during the weekend Mia was murdered, which didn't help Jesus with a solid alibi. Investigators collected any additional evidence they could, including questioning neighbors. One neighbor reported that Jesus had garlic hanging in the corners of his apartment to keep evil spirits away. He was incredibly superstitious, not realizing that he was the very evil the world needed protection from. Armed with all the evidence they needed for a warrant, the Seattle police traveled to Miami, Florida, and arrested Jesus Mesquia on January 10, 2003. His arrest came nearly a decade after Mia's murder. This man was no stranger to a life of crime. We report this in so many of the stories that we cover. Still, Jesus Mesquia was particularly noteworthy because it's believed that he was banished from Cuba in the 1980s when Fidel Castro exiled thousands of people, many of whom were criminals. They were released from prison directly onto U.S. soil. Despite his many arrests, Jesus only had a couple of felony charges on his record. His criminal record includes arrests for kidnapping, attempted solicitation, false imprisonment, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon, and indecent exposure. He has convictions for battery and assault, which occurred in 1986, a spousal battery that happened in 1989, and another charge for robbery from 1990. Jesus had the benefit of a suspended sentence, but he violated probation in 1991 for indecent exposure. That incident wound up in a misdemeanor conviction. When he was finally arrested for Mia's murder, Jesus lived in Florida. He was married, but he didn't stay out of trouble. It was because of a burglary charge that resulted in felony probation that he was even caught. Because his probation required him to submit a DNA sample, he essentially led the detectives right to his front door. Jesus was questioned and even shown a picture of Mia. He said he didn't know her. Furthermore, he claimed he didn't have sex with her and denied any knowledge or involvement with the crime. Mia's friends and bandmates were shown a picture of Jesus, but none of them recognized him either. Sadly, this crime was panning out to be a terrible case of Mia being in the wrong place at the wrong time. No one believed the tough rocker chick they knew could be overtaken and brutally murdered so senselessly. Jesus was charged with first-degree premeditated murder, although the state amended the original information to include the alternative of finding Jesus guilty of first-degree felony murder based on first- or second-degree rape. 
Though it was a lot of information to take in, prosecutors wanted to be sure the jury had every opportunity to find this monster guilty of something. Interestingly, there was another crime of a sexual nature that Jesus was linked to in his charging papers. There was a woman that reported she was being followed by a man who was slowly driving a car behind her. When he pulled up and she turned to look, he was masturbating. He tried to get her into the car, but she managed to get away, and she even wrote down his license plate number. The plate traced it back to Jesus Mesquia, though it appears no arrest was made at the time. The crime happened only about five weeks after Mia's murder. Prosecutors included this information to show the hatred Jesus appeared to have towards women, along with his predatory behaviors. He didn't need to know a woman to attack and take what he wanted. Jesus stood tall at six foot four and liked to wear jewelry, including gold rings and chains. He may not have appeared to be intimidating, but he was a monster. Despite the danger he presented to all women in general, his wife described him as a calm person and a wonderful father to their little girl. He even had a daughter from a prior relationship and maintained that relationship with her. How could a man who had two precious daughters commit such terrible acts of violence against women? There is no answer, but it is truly mind-boggling. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Jesus had translators throughout the trial. He never really spoke and didn't take the stand. The trial lasted eight long and arduous days, although given the media attention, it certainly could have taken longer. The jury broke for deliberations and they stayed in the jury room, debating for three days. Finally, on the fourth day of deliberations, the jury came back with a verdict, finding Jesus guilty of first-degree felony murder. The judge sentenced Jesus to 440 months in prison, which equals approximately 36 and a half years. An excessively long term was issued due to the aggravating factors, which included deliberate cruelty. The recommended sentence for Jesus was between 240 and 320 months, which would equal 20 to 26 and a half years in prison. Because of this exceptional sentence, Jesus appealed his conviction and sentence. Concerning his conviction, Jesus wanted to admit evidence that Mia's ex-boyfriend, Robert Jenkins, could have murdered Mia. The appeals court struck this claim as having no merit. There was no evidence that Robert was the murderer. Another part of his claim was that he wanted to present another possible suspect, a man named Scott McFarlane. Scott was a cab driver, one that frequently drove Mia around Seattle, and even went so far as to claim to have a relationship with Mia. Scott was working the night she was murdered. However, after a hearing on the matter, the lower court ruled that there was insufficient evidence to implicate Scott McFarlane. The appeals court sided with the trial court and denied his claim as well. Another issue Jesus raised during his trial was that his DNA was taken unlawfully and should not have been admitted in trial. The trial court ruled against this claim, and the appeals court also affirmed this ruling. Jesus's final appeal issue was his sentence. He argued that because the actual sentence far exceeded the recommendation, 
he deserved the opportunity to be resentenced. The appeals court did rule in his favor on this issue, citing the U.S. Supreme Court's Blakely decision, which means that when a sentence exceeds the recommended range, the aggravating factors must be either admitted by the offender or decided by a jury ruling. In the August 22, 2005 ruling, the matter was remanded back to the lower court for a resentencing hearing. In a bizarre turn of events in 2009, Jesus returned to court and waived his right for a jury to decide whether the aggravating factors were enough to warrant the exceptional sentence. Because he waived his right, Judge Sharon Armstrong resentenced Jesus Mesquia to serve the full 36 years as initially decided. Defense attorney George Epler could, or would, not give any reason for why Jesus requested his first sentence to be imposed. It took a decade to find Mia's killer and another six years to ensure that he was kept locked behind bars. But at least this portion of the tragic story can be finally put to an end. After 35 years with the Seattle PD, Detective Gagnon would be able to retire, knowing this evil man was safely behind bars and no longer a menace to society. Mia Sabata was born on August 25, 1965. She was raised in Louisville, Kentucky to parents Dick and Donna Sabata. Her parents got divorced when she was just a kid and her dad moved to the Pacific Northwest which may have helped entice her to move west with her band in the early 90s. Her musical abilities were many, and at a young age, she learned to play the guitar and sing. But it was in college that Mia found her true calling for making rock music. She attended the Liberal Arts School Antioch College, located in Ohio, in 1984. While at college, the Gits were formed in September of 1986 and included members Andy, Matt, and Steve. In addition to her musical abilities, Mia was a poet and a painter. She was a true artist to her core and was able to express herself through many different mediums. As a child, she was described as sensitive and smart, one who was funny and loved to make jokes, even to the new people she thoroughly enjoyed meeting. In 1989, the Gits moved to Seattle and the burgeoning music scene of alternative, punk, and grunge rock music. When she went there, Mia and her dad's relationship had the opportunity to flourish, and they became great friends as her music career began taking off. The band released its debut record called Frenching the Bully in 1992, signed with Atlantic Records in 1993, and scheduled a national tour. Everything she dreamed of was coming true, when she was suddenly and brutally taken from it all. Sadly, the Gits, with frontwoman Mia, only released one album while she was alive. They completed a successful West Coast tour and were recording a new album when she was murdered. Their second record, which was released posthumously, was called Enter the Conquering Chicken. The cover of the record was a painting of Mia done by Mark Pollard. Her death rocked the Seattle area. After her passing, several of Mia's friends created the nonprofit group called Home Alive. The group's mission is teaching self-defense to women, ensuring they make it home alive each night, regardless of how they did so. In the heyday of Home Alive, they put out two different compilation records to raise money. Those albums included bands like Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, The Gossip, and Nirvana. Unfortunately, the group has disbanded as a nonprofit. Still, their message will always live on as they maintain a website called Teach Home Alive, which assists in aiding in self-defense courses, 
A documentary type of movie was made in 2014 called Rock, Rage, and Self-Defense, an oral history of Seattle's Home Alive. The film covered the Home Alive group, starting with how they formed, and it included numerous interviews, videos, and photos of Mia and the band. All-night candle vigils were held. Money was raised and private detective Lee Heron was hired to investigate the murder. Throughout her investigation, Lee discovered that Mia intended to call out her ex-boyfriend the night she was murdered, but she didn't locate him. Despite police ruling Robert Jenkins out, Lee believed he was the culprit, although she was ultimately proven wrong. Mia was murdered approximately eight months before Kurt Cobain completed suicide. His death devastated fans across the whole country, but Mia's murder was almost worse in the local Seattle community. She was always around, playing with the Gits, solo, or with other bands she liked to jam with. The band, Seven Year Bitch, made an album they called Viva Zapata, which was a tribute to Mia. Plenty of rockers came out to pay homage to their friend, who was taken too soon. Joan Jett even joined the Gits for a brief period, and they called themselves Evil Stig, which is Gits Live spelled backward. Mia's story captured national attention, spawning documentaries and TV shows. America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries both covered Mia's story. Hers is one of the rare ones where the bad, evil man was a total stranger, attacking at random and robbing the music industry and the world of the person whose music could have impacted so many. On stage, Mia was fierce and had a don't-mess-with-me attitude. She was a hardcore feminist, liking to scream on stage without care for whose toes she stepped on. Mia wanted to make herself heard, and in the end, music was the best and most appropriate tribute to her. Seattle Homicide Lieutenant Steve Brown was quoted in a Seattle Post-Intelligence Reporter article called Police Make Arrest in 1993 Mia Zapata Slang. He said, quote, the arrest resonates how powerful the latest DNA testing truly is at bringing a measure of justice to families who have been so negatively impacted by violent crime. This statement couldn't be more true. If it weren't for a cold case team resubmitting the DNA samples taken from Mia's murder, Jesus Mesquia would have likely gotten away with it forever. With the constant advancements in DNA testing methods, it only makes sense to continue to run samples from unsolved murders in the hopes that justice can one day be brought to families of all victims. Mia's father, Rich, or Dick Zapata as he likes being called, shared these parting words with Mia's fans around the world. She was on loan to me. And, and uh, she now belongs to all of you. And it's, uh, it's neat. I like it. I'm proud of her. Cut my skin, it makes me human. The scar on your mind, won't just feel the pain. Cause it's what makes us human. Yeah, it keeps us all the same. You lose your head and your chosen trip. The side of your blood might lose your skin. But a broken heart turns to sin. Well, when the world is open, we're all the same. Cut my skin, it makes me human. It's gonna feel the pain. You're looking at fate and you're looking at truth. It's 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, send us an email at TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written by Mary Cole, research and content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey.